the most helpful and impactful sermon that I've ever heard was from Peace of Christ's own Reverend Fran Pratt. I I thought about asking Aurelia to like switch the video over to her right then so that we could see her blushing when I called her out for it. But I decided that that wouldn't be necessarily super kind. Uh, But in June of 2019, she described our faith as a house. So for some of us, our house of faith looks almost identical to the one that our parents built. Uh, But others have built a faith that looks nothing like the house in which they grew up. Many Christians in the last couple of decades have described their faith journey as one of deconstruction, breaking down the structures of faith that don't fit the God that they've come to know through scripture, through community, and through experience. Fran's metaphor seems really apt in such a case. If your house of faith is in a state of disrepair, it's worthwhile to take a long look at the structure and to figure out which walls need to come down and which walls are load-bearing and need to be preserved. No matter how sturdy or dilapidated, it seems reasonable that any personal house of faith could be improved with some prayerful introspection, a little elbow grease, and maybe a well-placed sledgehammer here or there. The genius and the beauty of the message was that Fran encouraged us through her sermon not to remain stuck in deconstruction, but to make time and space for renovation. Sure, demolition day can be exhilarating and cathartic, as anybody who watches HGTV for any amount of time can tell. But the true joy isn't found in destruction for destruction's sake. The look of joy on a family's face comes when they see their old home's transformation into something that is at once familiar and new, full of cherished memories and the potential for a better future. I've come back to that sermon and that metaphor many times since first hearing it. Since it makes so much sense to me as a frame of reference for my own faith, I try to incorporate other lessons I've been learning through the years into that metaphor. One of those lessons is that wherever I find that my understanding of God, the church, humanity, or the world around us in general, Anywhere I find that my understanding is built on dualistic thinking, that's a part of my faith that I want to examine more closely to see if it needs some deconstruction and remodeling. Now, dualistic thinking is a phrase that I didn't understand a few years ago, although if you would have said it in conversation, I probably would have nodded along as if I understood. Uh, It seemed just like maybe I understand a little, but not enough to explain it. So in the last couple of years, I've been studying up on it a little bit more and I've heard some sermons on it and uh, it's been really helpful. So just in case you're where I was a couple of years ago, from what I understand, the idea is that humans are quick to categorize, uh, whether it's things or experiences or people or just about anything we quickly categorize into good or bad, uh, black or white. It's either this or that, us or them. On the one hand, 
that seems really helpful in some situations. It's good to be able to know, oh, is this fruit healthy or poisonous? Or is this furry thing that's coming towards me a cute kitten or a lioness about to pounce? Or to be able to look at a person and say, okay, well, this smiling person is a family member who's really excited to see me uh, open a present. Or this smiling person is a used car salesman who's trying to get me to buy a $1,500 anti-rust invisible coat. It's helpful to be able to make those snap decisions. But on the other hand, if we are instantly and unconsciously categorizing everything, there's a lot of risk that we're gonna miscategorize, possibly in some really harmful ways. So when I think about that kind of miscategorization, I look at the Bible and I see that there are lots of opportunities for people to have maybe done better if they hadn't been so focused on dualistic thinking. Uh, in the book of Judges, there's this general named Sisera, and he was fighting against the Israelites. And he got smoked. And he had to run away, uh, and he fled to this tent of a woman named Jael, where he figured, oh, I guess I can rest safely here. He was tired, and he had likely categorized the woman as not a threat. But then she drove a tent peg through his head, and that makes me think maybe he miscategorized there. In the same way, King Saul saw David and his sling and was like, ah, I don't think that he's all that much of a threat. I don't know that I want to send him out to fight against uh, Goliath. He miscategorized because he didn't see the full picture. And then looking through the Gospels, people were constantly miscategorizing Jesus. They had one idea of who he was, uh, but that wasn't always right. They miscategorized what he was saying. They didn't understand what his miracles were. And so many, even his followers, saw that he went to his death and didn't understand what that meant or the purpose behind it. One of the challenges for me is that it's a lot easier to identify dualistic thinking in other folks as opposed to seeing it in the mirror. But with that said, I'd like to share one way I'm trying to root out some of the dualistic thinking in my own life. Maybe you've noticed, but there seems to be a war going on between feelings and reality. There are battle lines drawn. Some folks dismiss feelings as really untrustworthy, while others play lo place lots of, lots of stock in their own feelings or the feelings of others. Both groups can point to verses from the Bible and research into human thinking and behavior to support their position or to um, undermine their opposition. As someone who is raised in a faith tradition that it extols rationalism and often distrusts feelings. I've certainly been guilty of undervaluing the importance of God-given emotions, both in myself and in others. But on the other hand, as someone who's rebelled against a lot of the currents of that faith tradition, I've swung too far to the other direction sometimes and overvalued feelings. The most glaring example of this in my journey is the years leading up to me becoming a parent and in the two plus years since becoming a father. Most folks who know me 
are aware that Amanda and I have two incredible, adorable and lovable foster kids as a part of our family. But very few people know of all the challenges we've faced to get here. So I figured let's have a little bit of a story time and I'll let you in on some of that story and you'll have a better idea of how I'm trying to break out of dualistic thinking. So like I said in the get to know you phase, uh, Amanda and I got buried got married back in 2011. So we're coming up on 10 years. In pre-marriage counseling and in regular, hey, let's talk about the future type of conversations, it was abundantly clear that Amanda was really, really excited about being a parent. And she was, it was really important to her. And it was something that she was really looking forward to. For me, I didn't really have a picture of a Christian married couple who didn't have kids as an example. Most of my mentors or the people I looked up to were married and had kids. So that just seemed like, hey, that's the way things go. So uh, for a variety of reasons, I just kind of assumed, hey, I want kids because not wanting kids isn't an option. Well, we decided we weren't in a super big hurry to get started on growing the family. So we decided we'll, we'll wait maybe five years and we'll figure things out once we get there. We weren't sure if we wanted to do foster care or adopt or have biological kids or do some combination of the three. But we figured we'll cross that bridge when we get there. So over the course of five years of marriage, you know, some things change and some things stay the same. Amanda was just as excited to grow our family, if not more excited by the time we started really seriously thinking about it. But for me, in that time, I'd seen some incredible couples who'd chosen not to have kids and began to realize that that was a legitimate option for folks to take. I'd also been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and clinical depression, neither of which I recommend, uh, which made me wonder about, uh, as far as biological kids, hey, what kind of things from my physical self would I be passing on to any potential kids? And what kind of things from my mental health would uh, prevent me from being as good of a parent as I was hoping to be? By the time Amanda and I started discussing next steps, I was dealing with some real serious self-doubt about my ability to be a good parent and my desire to do so. Uh, pro tip, I learned that there isn't necessarily a great way of bringing up the I'm not sure if I want to have kids conversation. Uh, if anybody has a better idea of how to do that, uh, feel free to share that in the comments, but uh, I have no good examples of how. A quick aside, so these feelings of inadequacy were not spurred by a lack of people having confidence in me. In fact, my inability to explain my own misgivings led to a veritable conga line of people telling me what a great parent I would be. Those words were often really, really kind, but in my head, they simply reinforced that the failures and flaws that I saw in myself were going to lead to underperforming everyone's expectations of me. 
when everyone around you is certain that you're going to be great at something, it can highlight the differences between how others view you and your own self-perception. So Amanda and I eventually agreed to dive into fostering. My fears and insecurities were still present, but several factors helped me make the plunge. For one, uh, through Camp of the Hills and through a lot of different ministry work that I'd done, I'd worked with lots of kids who were in the CPS system, and it seemed reasonable to open up our home to children whose homes weren't safe and healthy. I thought that even if I'm not as great of a father as everyone expects me to be, I can at least help provide a safe place for kids who need a home. Also, it was clear to me and to anyone who'd known Amanda for more than five minutes that she was going to be a rock star mom. And it seemed wrong to keep her from something she desperately wanted just out of my fear. So in November of 2018, we suddenly had an 11 month old and a two month old in our family. Through all the laughs, diaper changes, court delays, ambulance rides, nights in the hospital, smiles and tears, a really interesting thing happened. You know what happened to those feelings of self-doubt? They stayed mostly the same. It, it would make for maybe a much more uplifting sermon if I said, well, everything just got better and now I have great mental health and everything's perfect and I believe in myself fully, but that's not real. Uh, I still feel like I'm not a good enough parent sometimes. And sometimes I still feel like my kids deserve better. But something that has happened is that I've learned better how to fit those feelings into reality. One of the things that I've been trying to take note of is how folks whom I believe to be great parents view themselves. So my parents are both in absolutely incredible and have done better by me than any son could have ever hoped for. And yet they still have times when they second guess themselves. The fact that I believe that they're great parents doesn't just eliminate their insecurities. Even though I feel like I'm really well qualified to assess how they did and how they're doing. Some of my best friends astound me with their patience and their love for their kids. But when I try to explain to them how much I look up to them, they're quick to deflect and bring up their own failures. So I don't say this to suggest that that's the way we all should be and that we should let false humility like drive us and make us think we're less than we are. What I want is to remind us that sometimes the people around us have really important perspectives that can help us better understand reality. In the moments I feel most unworthy and incapable, I've been trying to remind myself that my own view of reality isn't complete. I do see myself more fully than others in some ways, but there are also a lot of blind spots that I have, and I have to trust that others can help me see those places clearly and help me understand. The dualistic way I used to think put way too much emphasis on those feelings that I had of, I won't be good enough. But I also think some of that well-intentioned advice of, well, those feelings will go away once you have kids. I think 
that didn't necessarily take seriously enough that those feelings were real. And even if they weren't completely true, there was some truth in them. Reality certainly exists outside of my feelings, but my feelings play a part in bending my reality. So if you're like me and deal with feelings of insecurity and self-doubt, I'd like to encourage you to embrace some non-dualistic thinking. We may always have a voice in the back of our head that says, I'm not a good enough parent, or I'm not smart enough, or I'm too loud, or I'm not enough of a leader, or any other discouragement like that. And the truth is, there may be some truth into those self-doubts. But if we can understand that those feelings and self-perceptions are only part of reality while incorporating the insights of those around us, I believe we've got a much better chance of seeing ourselves and the world around us more accurately and more kindly. We've been given the gifts of scripture, of community, and of experience, and each of them have something to say to us. When we feel unlovable, we can look back to passages that proclaim God's love for us. We can remember the ways that the church has loved us well. And we can remember the individuals who love us despite all the reasons that we feel unlovable. So my prayer, not just for myself, but for all of us, is that we may be a people who neither overemphasize nor ignore our own feelings or the feelings of others. May we use our God-given tools and our spirit-inspired community to see reality more clearly. And may we bear with one another and with ourselves as we all strive to love well.